Welcome to the Chasing Presence podcast, co-hosted by Santi and Mike. This is a space where we share our insights for how to live a more spiritually aligned life. Join us on our journey to expand consciousness, live with purpose, and awaken to our true nature. Welcome, everyone. I am super excited because today we are joined by Elena Brower, mother, mentor, artist, teacher, best-selling author, and host of the Practice You podcast. Elena has taught yoga and meditation since 1999. After graduating Cornell in 1992, she designed textiles and apparel for almost a decade before focusing on yoga, meditation, art, and writing. Her first book, Art of Attention, has been translated into seven languages. Her second, Practice You, is a bestseller. Both Practice You and Being You are utilized as teaching tools in a variety of settings. Elena's first collection of poetry, Softening Time, published earlier this week in May of 2023. Elena's yoga classes and meditations are featured on GLOW. Her virtual engaged mentorship is renowned for inviting analog creativity into online coursework and her perceptive parenting audio course is a key resource for parents. Elena's spoken word poetry can be heard on Above and Beyond's Flow State album. She works to elevate bright figures for girls, futures for girls, women, and children through her support for Girls on Fire leaders, On the Inside, and Free Food Kitchen. Elena is commencing Buddhist chaplaincy training in 2024. Elena, thank you so much for being here today. Super excited and happy to have you. Oh, guys, thank you so much for having me. I'm really, really happy to be here. Thank you. So I think where I'd like to start off is just a simple question. How did you embark upon your spiritual path? Is this something you were brought up with or is it something that you learned about and awakened to later on in life? Hmm. Wow. There's there's actually a poem in the book, In Softening Time, that uh, speaks to this i'm six sitting in front of a mirror and i'm asking myself who am i my little my glasses are not on my face my left eye is crossing um i'm just trying to figure things out i think that's when it started i was like who what is happening here who are you in the mirror who are you and i remember feeling like there was something much bigger but i didn't know what it was and I think that's where it started. I had a lot of great influences since then, people who have, um, you know, sort of taken me under their wing, art teachers, other kinds of teachers. Um, and that's kind of how it, I, I feel like I've been buffeted along on the waves by caring folks who took the time. Great. So let's, uh, you mentioned the book, Softening Time, and the poetry that you've been writing over the course of your life. And it seems that there are several themes within this book, um, slowing down, being in tune with the energy of life, love, loss, grief, etc. Can you just tell us a little bit about more about what inspired you to write this book um, and sort of what it means to you? Sure. Um, the book itself came about over the last 40 years since I was about 10. I'm now f- almost 53. And it was gleaned from a million different journals uh, that were boxed and moved from place to place to place, college to after college. And going through those journals with a dear friend of mine, we figured out uh, a pretty substantial pile of pages that could possibly work in a collection of poems. A couple of years ago, I got sick of looking at the pile in my cabinet and I started going through it. 
and each one of the pieces speaks to a certain time in my life, a certain regret, a certain healing, um, certain friends, family members, and they're very, very personal. And what I've heard the most in terms of the feedback since the book launched a couple of days ago is the more personal poems feel the more universal to more folks, more applicable and accessible to more folks, which I I think is true, of course, in any piece of writing, but very interesting to to have it be my own and feel that like, oh, okay, I, I can get very personal here and not worry, you know, about how things are received. Those are the ones that touch the heart most readily, it seems. So speaking of which, um, I think I would love to read an excerpt of your poem and then ask you what it means and then ask a question based on that. So it's page seven of Softening Time, One Thought at a Time. Floor of my studio apartment, beneath my forehead, kneeling, at home here, altered, high. Two decades later, a world away, upright in my favorite chair, at home here, fine. Almost eight years since I changed my mind, became myself. Gift of age, gift of quiet, gift of time. Today, discomfort reigns. Am I a good mother, decent friend, loving partner? Would they be fine if I disappeared? Stranded with staccato, threading questions, momentarily wishing for that high again. Take me, ruin me, forget me, remember me, release me, remove me, help me, save me, remind me, erase me. Inhale, emptiness. Exhale, emptiness. So what does that all mean? Mm. Takes you from the past where in my little apartment in New York, um, high, like crazy high, smoking so much weed and kind of getting lost in the process of that. And then back to the chair in my house as I am. At the time of writing it, I'd been sober for seven years from marijuana. And, um, you know, realizing that I, there are times when I wish, I wish I could just smoke and just get lost again, you know, but I'm not willing to do that to my body or my brain anymore. And that's what that's about. These staccato threading questions are the ones like, oh, you can do it. You can just get high once. Can't you? You know, stuff like that where the mind starts to play tricks on us, um, at least as far as me. I know the mind plays tricks on me. And I have to be very diligent and vigilant and soft also with myself in order to make it through all of that. So in your podcast, Practice You, you did mention that you replaced this addiction with different habits like um, like art or just other things that can distract the mind from that. I'm assuming it was not an easy transition from you know smoking every day to replacing it with more healthy habits. So can you describe that experience and um, like how difficult it was for you, maybe some mindset hacks or routines that you had to use, like meditation, for example, to 
to step into that space between stimulus and response and really act in a way that's aligned with your higher self. So sweet of you to ask that. Um, it was really hard, actually. Those few, um, you know, those few kind of, let's say the first 20, 30, 40, 50 days even were really hard, like beyond. And to just find other ways to keep myself busy. I moved a lot. You know, I would go to a lot of yoga classes. I would run. I was a big runner at that time um, in the streets of New York or in the parks or along the rivers. Um, that's kind of how I got through it. It was it was excruciating at times the first few days. Like, wow. that's It was such a chunk of the day that was taken up by that habit, to be honest. So in this book, you also talk about, um, if I'm not mistaken, like in the foreword of the book, you talk about this concept of deepening and softening self-awareness. What does it mean? I think most people understand perhaps what it means to deepen self-awareness, but what exactly do you mean when you talk about softening self-awareness? You know, for me, it's like you're, you know, when you, um, when you have a camera, it's in really good focus. Like when you go from portrait mode back to photo mode, let's say, and you're going from sort of soft focus into really good focus and back to soft focus when you go back to portrait mode. That's what I feel like that is for me. Softening the focus enough, softening the awareness enough that I can feel a sense of spaciousness around whatever it is that I'm looking at rather than some kind of tension or tightness or judgment or doubt or fear, you know? Yeah, that makes sense to me. And I think oftentimes we can try to kind of train our awareness to be hyper-focused on certain things. Exactly. And that has its place exactly. and that has its benefits for sure. But sometimes we focus too much on certain things at the cost of not being aware of of uh, other things in our surroundings and of the full present moment that we're always in. Uh, exactly. We're too focused on the future or the past or things outside of our control. Um, and so I think what you mean by softening awareness is this, is this concept of kind of surrendering to the moment and easing into it. So that way you can fully receive whatever it is that's, that's happening. That's what it feels like to me. Yes. Well said. What does surrendering to the present moment feel like to you? Because for me, oftentimes it is getting out of my head and getting into my body. And there's, mm. there's this, there's this thing that I do where I kind of like, I feel my feet on the ground or I feel my heartbeat and that kind of just like that grounds me into the present moment. You know, sometimes I, I, I'm still working through some trauma that I've had in my past, but Whenever I do this, it's like I, I get back into the present moment and then I'll get like flung back into my head. And it's like this kind of like this dance of like trying to get back into the present moment. So what does that what does that process feel like for you? You know, I just had an occasion to do this um, in in one of the poems called The Mother of All Things. There were three or four lines directly from Kim Kranz's book, Blossom and Blossoms and Bones, which has changed my life as a person with that. I had a former eating disorder back when I was in my teens, and her book really changed my life. And in the back of the book, Works referenced 
in my notes, I have page 80, Kim Kranz, Blossoms and Bones, with all the um, sort of attribution. And somehow in the final version, it didn't make it in there. And I sent her the book. I was super excited to talk to her. I was super excited to share with her that I had, you know, brought that poem forward. And I sent her, like, everything. And she got the book. She started going through it. She didn't see the reference in the back. And she was like, oh, my God, this is, like, exactly the same. And I was like, yeah, it's exactly the same. Look in the back. Works referenced. And then I look in the back, and it's not there, which was obviously my oversight. It's a huge mistake. Like, that's her work. It has to be referenced there. So I was really sad and really bummed. And, like, I spent about 30 minutes being really hard on myself. Like, how could you miss that? What the actual, you know, all the kind of terrible things that we say to, to, to ourselves when we screw up. And, you know, I think it's really about kind of knowing that you did your best. I did my best. I totally missed that. I'm so bummed about it. She's a good friend and I would never want her nervous system to feel like anything other than full honoring had happened. I mean, I can't even find the um, page in the book because I gave my books away. <laughs> because I keep giving them as gifts to moms who have teenagers with eating disorders. It's like that. And so rather than being hard on myself, I'm just trying to like make a little space and understand that I did my best and wrote the editor and she'll correct it in the next printing. And, you know, we're all just doing our best. That's what that feels like to me. Can you tell us a little bit, if you're open to it, a little bit more about this eating addiction that you had, um, maybe, I don't know, what caused it or, or sort of what that journey was like for you and how you healed from it and was it were able to move forward effectively in your life? You know, for me, it was a real disorder. It wasn't really an addiction. I was just eating as little as possible. I wanted to have some control over my body. I was in my teens. It was, you know, very popular for friends and people that I knew to kind of restrict their eating and to get as skinny as possible. And uh, it was really just that. I wanted some control. I felt out of control. And I think a lot of people do at that age. And I think sometimes it follows us into our adult lives. It didn't do that for me. Uh, as an adult, while I still you know, have some control issues to be certain, um, the eating disorder did not follow me in. And reading Kim's book, Blossoms and Bones, was like such a gift because she goes through that whole period of her life and how hard it was for her. And then kind of, you know, goes through the the, the portal, the, the crucible of spiritual practice and realizes that's absolutely not the way she wants to live. Um and that's really what it was like. One day, some a dear friend of mine told me, you know, hey, if you want to have babies, um, you know, there's no way that you can miss your period and and restrict your calories in this way without threatening your reproductive system. And so I was like, okay, got it. Got it. And I sort of turned it around. And that was that. I, I I started to look at what was going into my hands and into my mouth. I started to um, raise the number of calories. I knew that what I was doing was wrong for my body. I could feel my body weakening, and 
I turned the ship around and I attribute that to some great parenting. My parents did their very best and they really loved me. And I think I felt that in those moments, you know, their love and their care and their affection and their support of me. And that helped a lot. Awesome. So I actually want to share an experience that I, that I recently went through that does involve you. Um, so I was going to a gathering here in Malibu. Uh, I live in Burbank, but Malibu is about an hour away. And I got there early and I was feeling some social anxiety because there was a lot of people here that I had a lot of respect for, but I didn't really know anybody. It was just like me going by myself, me entering this person's home, like doing this like group meditation gathering by myself Mm. with them. And I was feeling a lot of social anxiety. I used to have a lot of social anxiety in my past. Like I know that you have as well. You Mm. you said that when you were uh, in your early twenties that you had a lot of acne and that contributed to a lot of your social anxiety. Yeah. Yeah. I was really uncomfortable in my skin to be literal and figurative. Yeah. And I, I still, I still experienced that as well. And I was in my car and I was just meditating and I was listening to the uh, flow state album with you featured doing uh, some spoken word. Um, and I was, I was crying my eyes out mm. and it felt so cathartic. By, by the way, you're, you have the most soothing voice I've like, I've ever heard. Oh, it wow. is, it, it is so nice. Thank you. Um, and I was just like, I was, I was experiencing this release. It was just like this gratitude of being alive. That's just like, you know, like everything's going to be okay, you know? And I don't know, every single time I listen to you speak on, on this album, it, it just, it, it makes me tear up and it also really just like helps me with whatever I'm going through. It helps me stay grounded. So first of all, I want to say thank you for doing that. It's like, I can't believe it's free on YouTube, Mm. number one. And number two, so when you were getting over your social anxiety, um, what did that process look like for you? What, What types of habits and routines did you have to use or mindset hacks did you have to use to get over that um, struggle in your life? Well, at the time, that was kind of when I started really using pot, using weed as a a crutch. And it gave me some courage. And then it made my skin worse. And I watched myself sort of ebb and flow with this this plant, uh, abusing this plant over the ensuing two decades before I finally chose to stop. But at that time, I just really kind of collected a very small group of friends and I tried my best to say yes when people asked me to do things. Um, I didn't really have a particular plan. I definitely went to therapy during the end of my 20s into my 30s and kind of worked on a bunch of stuff, including that. But my mission for myself was, or the hack as it were, was to just say yes to what people would ask me to do. You know, as long as it was somebody that I trusted and I felt safe, I would just say yes. And that really helped. It got me out of my mind and it got me into my body. It got me into some really cool, sweet, supportive uh, friendships. And 
yeah, that's that's kind of how I how I did it. So I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about Zen Buddhism. So it's my understanding that you are a student of Zen Buddhism. Um, I'm familiar with Buddhism in general, and I've studied it a little bit, but I'm not as familiar with this concept of Zen Buddhism. Um, can you talk about what the basic premise of it is and what drew you to study and practice it? So a long time ago, I met Roshi Joan Halifax, who's the abbess of Upaya Zen Center here in Santa Fe. I met her and I, I still don't remember exactly where we were. I have a feeling that I know, but I'm not 100%. Somewhere in New York, downtown. She struck me. She was, um, at the time, um, in her 70s, 60s into 70s, probably late 60s, and really just impressed me with a level of presence and care. And it was just a momentary meeting. But I made note in my body, and I was like, I'm going to find that lady again. And then over the course of years, I read her books. I would listen to her talks. I would go to things where she was speaking, and um, she really struck me. And I moved to Santa Fe and realized that her Zen Center is here, which I somehow thought was in Northern California. So I started studying. As soon as I found the Zen Center, it was like the same day or two later that the whole thing closed down for COVID. So there were no more public sittings. There was no more um, courses in person. Everything went online. And since then, that was three years ago, three, three years ago in a couple of months, I started to literally take almost every course that they offered online at Upaya. Some, some people pronounce it Upaya. And that's that's how I've studied. Up until kind of about six months or eight months ago, they were online solely. And as soon as they opened the doors to public sittings, I started going to the sittings. I started um, studying for uh, to take the Zen precepts uh, just over a year and a half ago. Finally took the precepts in March of this year, 2023, and now I'm moving toward Buddhist chaplaincy in 2024. And that'll take a couple of years to do. But to answer the question, finally, um, Zen Buddhism gave me a sense of uh, self and stillness that I'd never known before. Um, the It's a very simple practice of just sitting. There isn't anything, you know, sort of fancy. There's nothing to do. There's no breath work. There's no, you know, prescribed anything other than to just sit. And I can't tell you how helpful it is for me uh, to work in this tradition, to sit in this tradition, because I was always keeping myself very busy, like finding a million other things to do um, aside from just being with myself. And now that's becoming more and more possible and comfortable. And I'm really grateful. I can actually relate to that a lot. Um, maybe I'm inadvertently practicing uh, some similar thing to Zen Buddhism because sometimes I will just, I'll be doing things and then, you know, my mind is distracted and I'll think, okay, what do I have to do next? But then I'll remind myself, well, I don't, I don't have to do anything. I can just sit down and be. Um, stillness being, sometimes I'll just sit down in a chair or on my couch and just pay attention to subtle sensations in my body or the thoughts that are populating in my mind um, without trying to push myself to find that next 
task to accomplish or thing that I need to achieve. And I found the benefits of this to be quite, uh, quite remarkable. It seems so simple because all you're doing is just sitting down. But um, if you can move past and, and be with any sort of discomfort that arises, I think on the other end of that, there's an opportunity to process past traumas and to just refine uh, certain energies in your body in a way that's more aligned. Um, so I highly recommend people just like, you need to take time to just be, to just sit. Um, does this sound like what Zen Buddhism is kind of? I'm sure it's a little bit different than maybe what I'm describing, but is, it, is there any sort of like overlap there? Yeah, the, the practice of just sitting, it's called shikantaza in Japanese. I never pronounce it right, but that's what it's called. And um, it's really a time to sort of drop everything else. Drop the thoughts, drop the assumptions, drop the doubts, drop the beliefs, drop the commitments, drop the reservations, everything. And uh, it's like a vacation. And at first it's really hard. You know, when I did my first month long, it was really hard. I had no idea where to put my eyes or my mind. The eyes are actually partially open in this practice so that you can stay present in the room rather than close your eyes and go daydreaming or falling asleep. And uh, yeah, it took me days of sitting for five hours a day to finally feel like, okay, 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 everything is okay. I'm here. I'm not just here waiting for the time to pass. I'm here really savoring this spaciousness and time. You know, and that was that was really um, a wild kind of um, understanding. You know, there's no I, I'm I'm fine here. Like I don't have to be doing anything right now, and that was really hard for me. So you said that you spent multiple days, uh, five hours meditating. Is is that correct? So when you do a practice period. In any Soto Zen center, as far as I know, when you do a practice period, you're sitting for about five hours per day. And then when there's a Zazen Kai day or a Sashin, you're sitting for more like seven to eight hours a day. And um, you're not sitting those consecutively. You do an hour first thing and then an, an hour after breakfast, uh, after breakfast and then work practice, which is really like cleaning and caring for the spaces and the grounds. Another hour before lunch, another hour before dinner, and then another hour after dinner. Um, it's so kind of, and then when the deeper times come, there are more sits. Uh, installed in the day. And it's so wonderful to, um, you know, just drop into a schedule like that where it's just completely set for you. There's nothing else to do. There's nowhere else to be. There's meals at certain times. Everything has its own place and time. And uh, it took me days to drop into the schedule, if I'm honest. And then as soon as I did, it was like such a relief, I can't tell you, to um, just give over to the timing of things and the schedule of things. And there were, in the end, several hours, blocks of time where I didn't have a thought, you know, and, and that was a real gift to me who I've just been hustling and moving and, and, you know, forging ahead for years, decades, in fact. So do you think that for someone to get to a place 
of having a lot of space within their mind, having a lot of control of what thoughts that they think, that it takes a really long period of time of med- meditating regularly, getting used to that space to get to that point. And I'm also curious, do you, when you do experience negative emotions, is it really easy for you to drop that self-doubt, that grief, or any, any of those negative emotions that can very easily take over our body? In the tradition that I'm studying, and this is a, a real important point for this tradition, both are true. Sometimes it takes a really long time to get to a place where you can really just drop the contents of the mind and drop the doubt and drop the, you know, self-cherishing. But there are also moments where you can sit down, you can listen to a story, you know, a koan or a story from one of the ancient teachers and, uh, you know, hundreds of years ago, and you can have a flash. I'm snapping my fingers. And completely understand for a moment in time, exactly the nature of this whole great matter, as it's referred to, this matter of life and death. Um, so both are true. You know, yes, it comes in a flash, and yes, it also can take many, many years. It took me years to just be open enough to listen to the stories, to take the time to entertain the possibility that these ancient teachers had so much to share with me that would bear on my current reality. Um, and then also it comes in an instant sometimes, and then it's gone as quickly as it came. So then it, when you experience negative emotions, how does that process look like for releasing the self-doubt and coming back into this place of oneness and into, into this place of stillness? So it changes from day to day, you know, sometimes I can really be hard on myself. And as I get older, that is getting less and less of a grip in my consciousness and in my body. You know, I'm learning how to just excuse myself and know that I did my best, as I was saying earlier, and move on, you know, like the question that I ask myself is, all right, how, okay, I feel that you're feeling this, but how fast are you willing to let this go so that you can just move on with your day and with your life? You're doing your best. And like I said, it, it comes with age. I think it does take time and it does feel difficult at times, but it gets easier as you get older. So uh, what does it look like in terms of you incorporating this practice of sitting uh, in your day-to-day life now that you know, you're not always at a, at a, at a center or at, a, I don't know what they call the, the places that you do these practices at, but when you're just going about your day-to-day life with your normal routines, do you take, do you have a, a routine in, in where you're regularly practicing and setting time aside to do this? Is it sporadic? What does that look like for you these days? So sitting practices at the same time every day, 7 a.m. and 5.30 p.m. I follow along with upaya.org on their YouTube website if I'm not in person in the Zendo, which I am a couple times a week. Um, really helps me to have, to be able to drop in there, but the YouTube served for a really long time, so both work. That's kind of it. There's nothing special. You know what I mean? I sit 7 o'clock, sit 5.30. The 
it's kind of my favorite part of the day, that 5.30 to 6.30, because at the end of that, it's a whole new day. You know, it's like this shower for my mind and my consciousness. And it really, it's so helpful to me. That, that's beautiful. Um, I do want to also talk to you now about your engaged mentorship program, which yeah. seems to be about unlocking creativity, aligning with our purpose. And there seems to be also a mix of business as well as personal. Um, can you tell us about this program, who it's for, and you know what, what called you to start this program? You know, I was seeing a few clients privately for mentorship, and I really just felt like there was a group that needed to form that could be meeting live once a month and just getting together on certain topics that have relevance to all of us. So it's evolved quite a bit. And now that live gathering once a month at the very beginning of each month has a very specific um, flow and a, a specific theme that I choose early before the end of the year. Um, <clears throat> this year, let's see, I'll just read you the themes because I think it's fun to think about it. Elegance, ease, energy, breathing, beauty, balance, release. That's July. I have a lot of notes there, so I have to keep scrolling. <laughs> Radiance, responsiveness, intelligence, inquiry, illumination. And I pull from so many different places. Very often I have guest uh, experts come in, but the conversations are kind of never what we'd expected. And I plan every minute within an inch of its life for each one of those live gatherings. So I provide a PDF beforehand, a few days before, so that people know, okay, this is what we're going to be talking about here. Awesome. This is who the guest is. Sometimes I tell and sometimes I surprise. Um, but it's always a very rich conversation. It's uh, webinar style. So it's really just me going through the PDF and giving the folks who are there, it's usually like between, I don't know, 50 and 100 people, writing prompts, meditation, and some kind of direction for both business and householding. We're all pretty much doing both. Um, and I put an extra you know, emphasis on what it means to be a good householder because we're all doing that. Some of us are doing a business in some fashion or another, but we're all keeping a house. What does that look like? How does that work for people? What's the most ideal way in which to, you know, operate when things are extraordinarily challenging? You know, these are some of the questions that we ask. And through the lens of each one of those words, at least for this year, um, we really get deep into what that means. Um, Beauty, for beauty, it seems like, oh, yeah, beauty, whatever. No, we ended up talking to the mother of a neurodivergent kid who has learned how to not only find beauty in her own household and in her own experience and, of course, in her child, but she's now leading other moms of divergent neurodivergent kids to their own sort of freedom and sense of belonging and safety. So beauty is you know, turned into something very different, not just interior beauty, but finding beauty in the most unlikely scenarios. That was not the only one. 
um, you know, it, 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 it's kind of a place for me to let loose a little bit and locate what it is that has the most meaning for me and dive into those, um, those topics very deeply. Man, I would absolutely love to participate in that mentorship program. Let's get you in there. Let's get you in there. I'm going to gift it to you to thank you for having me on your on your podcast. It's been it's really? so sweet to be here. Totally, hundred percent. Thank you so much. That yeah. is awesome. You're we, in. We are honored. Email me both of the emails that you want in there, and I'll I'll make sure it happens. I want you guys to have the experience, and you can watch. There's a whole library. The coolest part is it's not just a live gathering. There's an entire library. We record. Uh, content every month and there's a library of all this other content that comes through that is just epic thank you so much that's that's amazing very generous very grateful totally very grateful of course and I, w- I would love to ask you more questions about this but we are running out of time so i'm going to ask you about um your essential oils i know they have hold a very special place in mm-hmm. your life and you say that they can help with emotional support so can you talk a little bit more about that yeah, they do. The plants, they're just plants. They're plant essences. It is not brain surgery. And it's also one of the most extraordinary ways to impact your emotional state. When you inhale a scent, and as you know, from your childhood, there are certain scents that uh, when they return to you, you're literally transported to another place, another time. When you inhale a scent, it goes directly to your limbic brain. There's no barrier. So there's an instant shift in the brain's chemistry. And I take this work very, very seriously. I've been um, teaching and learning and selling essential oils for 10 years. I think it's been nine or 10 years. Um, And it's a big part of my life. And I have had huge shifts, not just emotionally, but also mentally and also physically as a result of the oils in my life, structurally, skin-wise, respiratory support, digestive support. It's pretty endless how many ways in which the oils can support us. So I continue to learn as much as I can and to share as much as I can. And the company for whom I work is doTERRA, and they continue to innovate and create these incredible Um, suites and flights of products that um, have really had a beneficial impact, not just on me, but on so many thousands, hundreds of thousands of people that I know. And on the other side, the growers, the farmers, the distillers, the harvesters, those relationships doTERRA takes very, very seriously. And they only work with smallholder farmers across the world in various different regions where certain plants are grown. And the um, integrity of the way in which they work, the speed with which the farmers and harvesters are paid, the care that is taken in those regions to build infrastructure and hospitals and um, schools, it's just unbelievable. And I got started with them because of that side of the equation, the way in which they care for the people who are actually making the um, the essences of the plants and, and growing. But then I started to see the results in my own life. So I continue, I continue in this work to um, share it as much as I can because it works. So 
if there are people who want to get started with essential oils but don't know where to start, what do you suggest? I have a 30 days little uh, flight of videos that's really good. There are two-minute videos, each of them. Some of them go to three minutes, maybe four. Um, if you go to elenabrower.com forward slash 30 days, three zero days, you'll find it there. It's free. It's completely free. And um, I just decided it was really important to put out the sort of basics of how I use the things that I use the most frequently. And that's what that is. And it's a great way to start. I get uh, contacted often by people who have watched 30 days and they're like, okay, okay, I want these three. I want those four. And I'm just very, always very honored to um, answer those inquiries and work with folks who, you know, they just want to bring the oils into their houses. They're not necessarily looking to do some sort of business like I am. They just want to be a customer. They just want to welcome the oils into their lives. They want to use them with their kids for focus and digestion. They want to use them for immune support, whatever it is. Um, it's, it's so easy to get your hands on them and to start using them in ways that are really, really supportive. This is interesting stuff. Um, I encourage people to check that out, definitely. And mm. we are going to wrap things up in a moment here with a couple last quick questions. But before I do that, Elena, I want to take a moment to recognize and acknowledge you for the work you're doing in this world. And more importantly, I think is what really um, called me to you and wanted me to have you on this podcast is your way of being in the world. And I think that in order to create change in this world, it really comes through our way of being. And mm. I believe that you are a highly conscious individual who is very aware and you radiate this sense of empathy and compassion uh, that is kind of rare to find, especially nowadays. And so I wanted to take a moment to acknowledge you for the journey you've been on and for the positive contributions that you have uh, for society. Thank you. Wow. Thank you so much. I am doing my best here, screwing up all the time Ugh. and then recalibrating and trying again. Thank you for saying that. Definitely. So if people want to follow you or learn more about your work, what is the best way for them to do that? Thank you. Um, just elenabrower.com is perfect. And um, there you can find literally everything that I'm up to, the mentorship, the other courses that are evergreen and available, courses that I launch a couple times a year, like Simplify, which is great. Um, yeah. That's the best place, elenabrower.com. And I, I think actually we have time for one more question if you would like to ask one more. Yes, we <laughs> do have a final question for you Amazing. that we ask everyone. Cool. Um, this is the question. If you had one piece of advice to give people who are seeking to heal and grow on their spiritual journey, what would it be? Forgive yourself again. Mm. Yeah. Amazing. For the small things and the big things, Coda, like small and big, forgive yourself again. We're none of us perfect and mistakes will continue to happen. My teacher says continuous failures, like it's just going to continue to happen. Please continue to forgive yourself so that you can forgive others, so that you can be in conversation with people who might not agree with you so that we can start to heal the rift in this world. That is amazing advice. Thank you. Thank you so much, Elena. Appreciate Thank you, you, Santi and Mike, so much. My hands are folded. Thank yeah, you so much. Right, right before we end, I'm going to read an excerpt from your poem. Everyone, please go buy Softening Time. It's mm -hmm. an amazing read. You're sweet. 
Just ask the flowers. They're always teaching beliefs and constructs blossoming and releasing. Hmm. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Chasing Presence podcast. If you enjoyed it, please spread the word by telling your family and friends and by sharing it on social media. You can also show us your support by leaving a review. Also, if you'd like to get in touch with us, our contact information is in the show notes. Please send us a message as we'd love to hear from you and get your feedback. As always, thanks again for listening. Stay present and have a great day.